dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered round him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, go now and leave your life of sin. So today, in closing our series, A Brush with Greatness, we've been looking at how an encounter with God can really change everything. In week one, we looked at how a fisherman named Simon had a miraculous encounter with Jesus and ended up becoming one of his followers, dropping everything to do so. And last week, we looked at a man named Saul, who's also known as Paul, and he was deeply afraid of the changes being brought on by Jesus. He was attempting to maintain power through violence towards followers of Jesus, but eventually had an encounter with Jesus, which led him to surrender his life and eventually becoming a church planter, starting churches all over the known world and writing letters to those churches, which now make up most of our New Testament. His name is also known as Paul. We discovered how rather than looking to religion or politics as the answer to our world's problems, Jesus offers a spiritual solution, a new heart of love that can spread life by life. And if you've never really looked at the scriptures or, or looked at how Jesus interacted with the brokenness of humanity, I want to encourage you to read through the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John shows these amazing encounters. It's 21 chapters. You can read it in 21 days as we get closer to Christmas. And I want you to notice the way that Jesus interacted with people. It's so interesting because you never see an apathetic response. People were either repelled by Jesus, offended by Jesus, or drawn to him, transformed by him. And see, the problem that we have, if you grew up in a cultural context that includes Christianity, it might be easy to just have an apathetic response to Jesus. And so what I want you to do is have an open heart and open mind that, that you can have an encounter with God even now, even today, where he reveals himself to you and actually transforms you to become who he's created you to be, rather than having a casual response to who he is, an encounter with God strikes at the human heart and demands a response. In the passage that Jonifer read, we meet a woman 
in John chapter 8, whose deepest and darkest secret was drug out into the open. She has a, a brush with greatness. But it was an unbelievably humiliating and vulnerable experience. And you probably heard that passage and questions came to your mind, like, how do they catch this woman in the act? Or, or where's the guy involved in this whole thing? I mean, if I remember health class correctly, it takes two to tango. Or perhaps I learned that from Dancing with the Stars. I can't remember, but somewhere along the way, two to tango is what I learned. Or maybe you're wondering why they would attempt to trap Jesus. And how does Jesus... Engage the vulnerable. Let's look again at verse 2. At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts. This is the space where the religious leaders conducted business. And Jesus is there. And all these people, it says, had gathered around him, around him and he sat down to teach them. Now, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act. So how does she get caught in the act? Well, we need to go back to John chapter 7 and see kind of the context, what led to this particular moment. See, just prior to this, the Jewish people had been celebrating what was known as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles, which sets the table for what's about to happen here. See, this was one of the biggest festivals of the Jewish calendar. People would have traveled for miles just to get to Jerusalem for this religious festival. And for the Pharisees, the teachers, this was their moment to shine. They were the headliners of this big event. These were the men who had been entrusted with protecting and carrying the the Jewish story forward from one generation to the next. This annual feast was one of their big moments. And in the midst of their moment, Jesus stands up in front of the crowd and says these words, John 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. Now, it could be that the crowds were thirsty, and they felt, these religious leaders, that Jesus was, was condemning them for not having enough water to offer. Or perhaps they began to hear the crowds murmuring, who is this man? How could he teach with such authority? Is it possible he is the long-awaited Messiah? Well, with those whisperings of the crowd, in awe of this person, Jesus, the religious leaders became irate, angry, jealous, even hostile towards Jesus. I can just imagine that they were grumbling to each other. Who is this guy? We're the defenders of the law. We're not going to allow this young teacher to steal our thunder, to steal our people. We need to create some sort of trap. We need to expose him as a fraud. And so they come up with a clever plan. They wanted a way to accuse Jesus a way to embarrass him, to humiliate him so that the crowds would stop talking about him and give them the attention they wanted. See, we cannot overestimate how toxic and how dangerous unchecked jealousy and envy mixed with a potent fear of losing power can be. So this drives these very devout religious leaders to go find a woman 
in the midst of an immoral sexual act. And if that wasn't embarrassing enough, they immediately take her in front of an entire crowd of people interrupting Jesus' teaching, using her for their own religious gain. Now, we can't entirely blame the religious leaders. I mean, this woman was caught in an act of which she was embarrassed and ashamed. And one thing that I know about sexual sin is that it rarely starts in that moment. It's almost always a result of a bunch of smaller decisions that were made before. Now, we don't know this woman's backstory. We don't know if perhaps she faced abuse and had been a victim and had just believed a lie that she would never be truly loved, that no one would ever commit themselves to her. Or that perhaps in an effort to mask her struggles in life, she's found a great deal of pleasure in the arms of a man who's not her husband. And so it was in a selfish pursuit that she ended up in this place. We don't know her story. All we know is that in this humiliating moment, her most shameful secret was exposed for everyone to see. The story continues, verse four. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, let me just say, we, we need to talk a little bit about what it means to be stoned. This isn't a South Austin version. In the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, like this idea of execution by throwing rocks at someone seems incredibly barbaric. But we have to understand the context. It's important to note that we're actually hearing about scripture that was written three to 4,000 years ago. And these laws were intended for ancient Israel in a time when all the tribes around them were more like ISIS and the Taliban. It's important to understand that context. And we shouldn't compare these laws to our own laws, but we should compare these laws to the laws that existed around them. And when you do, you'll realize how forward-thinking, how actually kind these ancient laws were for that time. Now, we posted in our Gateway South Facebook group the Bible Project's video of Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy. I want to encourage you to go watch that, and it can give you even more context of what's happening in these moments. But it's important to note that 2,000 years ago, Jesus came, and he fulfilled the Hebrew scriptures, and he actually takes it to a, a different place. He actually moves the law to a place that's even more beautiful and more pure. In fact, what Jesus says, the law says, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, you shouldn't even have lust in your heart for another person's spouse. So he actually calls us to a level of purity that's impossible to pull off without his help. But if the world actually lived out what Jesus invites us to live, you can imagine what a beautiful place this would be, where no one is taking from someone else where everyone is selfless and kind and compassionate rather than looking out for their own good. It's important to note, too, that when we hear things about stoning someone and it seems barbaric to us because we're listening to it in the context of a culture that was influenced by the scriptures, influenced by the kindness of Jesus. 
And there are cultures that have not had that experience where stoning is still practiced, where honor killing is still the norm. So when we hear this story, we need to understand in its context that that Jesus was put in a, a predicament. It's important to know that religion tends to condemn and bring about guilt. And so we need to consider for a moment the difference between how Jesus interacted with broken humanity and how the religious interact with broken humanity. See, the religious heap shame and condemn, (coughs) defining people by their worst moments. But these religious leaders didn't just happen to find her. We don't exactly know how they found this woman. It could have been they were peeping into her house, which is not good. It could be that they hired someone to tempt her or bribed someone. Maybe even bribed the person that she was in a relationship with to expose her. All we know, they left him alone and they brought her into this moment. Now, this was also a political trap. You see, the Jewish law said that someone caught in the act of adultery should be stoned. But the Roman law said that execution was not through throwing rocks, but it was actually crucifixion. And so by posing this question to Jesus, they were putting him in a position to either (laughs) accept the Jewish law, denying the Roman rulers, or to accept the Roman law and deny what the Hebrew scriptures said. Their hope was to either get him in trouble with Rome or get him in trouble with the people that were listening to him teach. But it was also a spiritual trap, an ethical or moral trap. See, they had seen Jesus show such kindness and love and grace to sinners and the outcast. But at the same time, he said things like this in Matthew 5. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Ultimately, they're trying to force him to choose between grace and truth. The truth, he had clearly upheld the scriptures. So in this moment, perhaps they could get him to contradict what he had said earlier about upholding and fulfilling the law. But grace, he was known for his compassion and kindness up to this point. They'd never seen him harsh towards someone. So perhaps they could get him in this moment to 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 judge this woman, to be harsh to this woman. Now, I think we set up a similar trap for ourselves. Some of us will lean towards this idea of, you know what, all we need is God's grace. God is not really concerned with the decisions that I make or the things that I do or the things that I believe. He just loves me. But to say that totally underestimates the greatness and holiness of God, who's actually warning us that when we go down a path of destruction, it actually hurts us and hurts others. But others of us would say, you know what? It's all about uncompromising truth. You just need the law and just do what it says. But to say that, you might miss the heart of compassion that we see God demonstrating throughout the scriptures. So what does Jesus do in the midst of this attempt to trap him? Verse six, but Jesus bent down and started to ride on the ground with his finger. I mean, he doesn't immediately do anything. He doesn't say anything at all. He just bends down and he starts riding. Don't you wonder what he was riding? 
I mean, it could be, we don't know, it doesn't say. But what if he was writing the names of all the people holding rocks? They're looking down, they're like, wait a minute. I think, oh my gosh, you just put my name. Well, perhaps he just wrote a cross. It would have confused them. They wouldn't have known what that meant. But for a moment, they were transfixed on what this teacher was doing. Or perhaps he was writing down their secret shame. They saw in the dirt a secret no one knew about them. Something that if they had been exposed would have been devastating. We're not sure what he wrote, but we do know in this moment... Jesus was dignifying this woman. More than likely, she was naked in front of all these angry people holding rocks in front of a crowd. She had been exposed, and she's incredibly vulnerable. And in this moment, Jesus gets all of the attention on what he's doing riding in the ground. He diverted all of their eyes from this embarrassed and humiliated woman. He distracted them diverting the attention towards himself, giving him a respite, giving her a respite in this moment. All of a sudden, everyone's eyes are fixed on him and what he's doing instead of the woman and her shame. But see, he doesn't choose one or the other. See, we are constantly put in a position having to choose between two man-made options, and Jesus always shows another way. There's always a better way. It doesn't have to be either or. Jesus refuses the trap and refuses to allow another human being's humiliation to be used to make a religious or political point. He refuses to choose between grace and truth. He doesn't say, come on, guys, I think you're blowing this whole thing out of proportion. Just let her go. But he also doesn't say, are you serious? You caught her in the act? Give me a rock. He doesn't do that. Instead, he offers a totally different way. He offers the same standard to the accusers that they are applying to her. Verse 7. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus doesn't say anything else because he doesn't have to. The Pharisees came to Jesus hoping to convict him, but instead they are the ones walk away feeling convicted. And we're left in this moment where suddenly the woman realizes she's the only one there standing before Jesus, just the two of them. We talked about this last week, that every single one of us is being pursued by God. And you can't live vicariously through the faith of your parents or grandparents, your aunts or uncles, that each of us has to decide in that moment, in an encounter with God, how will we respond? There are no grandchildren in the kingdom of God. He's not our heavenly grandfather. We have to choose, do we want him to be our father or not? If you were this woman caught in this moment before God himself, how would you have responded? Well, the human condition we see from the very beginning of scriptures in the book of Genesis, we see that Adam and Eve, when they went against what God asked of them, They immediately tried to hide. See, our 
human condition, we, we tend to hide our shame. We tend to try to make it seem as if nothing's happened. We do our best to rely on our own willpower, trying to sew our own fig leaves together to protect ourselves and to prevent vulnerability, all in an attempt to project our ideal selves to God and to others. But if we're honest, each one of us has things in our life that we regret. Some of us are paralyzed by the hidden places in our lives, the wounds, the shame that we carry from the past. Some of us are paralyzed by a struggle, an addiction, habit that we cannot seem to shake. Some of us are paralyzed by pride, fully able to see the struggle and sin in the lives of others, but unwilling or incapable of seeing our own blind spots. In this story, we relate more to those holding the rock the woman, than the woman who was caught. See, for so many of us, our fear of being fully known by God and others leads to a spin cycle of sin management, shame management, pain management. We just try to keep things moving to not deal with what's deep inside of us. But in this moment, this woman stands totally vulnerable before Jesus. Notice what happens, verse 10. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So how does Jesus engage the vulnerable? He forgives. Neither do I condemn you. You know, John 3.16, that that famous verse you see at football games, not as much, but for some of us, we remember those signs at the back of the end zone. John 3.16. And why John 3.16? Because it summarizes the, the story of the scriptures. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will never perish and, inter- and inherit eternal life. But do you know what verse 17 says? It says, for Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Yet why do so many people who say they believe in Jesus do something that Jesus did not do? Why do so many of us condemn other people for not making the same choices, for not believing the same way? See, Jesus did not condemn. He rescues He's able to tell her, I don't condemn you, knowing that he was on his way to the cross, on his way to giving his life for all of humanity, taking upon himself all of our secret shame and sin and wickedness. In forgiving her, he's saying to her that the kingdom of God is not just something you inherit when you die. It's available to you here and now. Neither do I condemn you, he says. But he doesn't just forgive her and then leave her there. He invites her, go now and leave your life of sin. He's inviting her into a life of freedom. He's not just forgiving her, keeping her stuck in the same patterns that she's been living in. He's offering her forgiveness and freedom. I can only imagine that woman may have believed the lie that her identity was rooted in her worst moments, believing herself to just be defined as an adulteress, 
Jesus looks at her and offers forgiveness and offers freedom, saying to her, you don't have to live this way anymore. Your identity is not defined by your worst moment. It's defined on whose you are. And to her, he says, in essence, believe in me, follow me, trust me. You are my daughter, a child of the king, loved by God. And you and I receive that same invitation today. It's so telling about God that when humanity is hiding in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, that God is shown walking through the garden asking, where are you? See, our deepest longings as humans is to be fully known and fully accepted and completely loved. Yet when it's offered, we find it safer to hide and cover ourselves. God still calls out to us today, where are you? Now, I need to tell you this. He knows where we are. (laughs) The catch is he's giving us the opportunity to decide if we want to be found. Do you want to be found? Do you want to acknowledge that he sees you and still loves you? Are you willing to make yourself vulnerable before God? Are you willing to be found by the one who sees you for who you really are? who forgives us, who invites us into the freedom and purpose that only comes when we allow ourselves to be seen, to be forgiven, to be found. See, we've inherited hiding as our starting place, but we can inherit being found as our ending place. You are fully known, fully accepted. You are fully loved. And so how do you respond to that? See, in this series, we've seen how a brush with greatness, an encounter with God, his strength and power, his compassion and kindness, his grace and love actually exposes us for who we are. Simon was so embarrassed once he realized who this man was that he acknowledged, I don't belong to be in your presence. Saul was completely overcome when he encountered Jesus, transformed everything about his life, moving from religion to a relationship. And now this woman has the opportunity to determine her future, exposed, hearing those words, I don't condemn you, being invited to trust him to live a new life. I don't know if you've ever been caught undeserving of grace. I've had many experiences in my life. Let me tell you a silly one. When I first moved to Texas, back to Texas, I grew up here, but moved from California, I got two speeding tickets within like the first few months. Now, it's interesting, once I changed to Texas plates, I haven't gotten any tickets at all. Isn't that strange? (laughs) But in both those cases, I, I had speeding tickets, and with two tickets against me, I was afraid I would lose my insurance because I'd had a wreck in California. And I'm on USAA at the time, and I was not in the Air Force. My dad was. So I knew they were looking for an opportunity to get rid of me. And so I decided to fight it. But I was guilty. Now, I had some good circumstantial evidence. Right? I was speeding, but I was coming down a hill. Right? Physics was against me in that moment. I was speeding in another circumstance, but it was under construction. And I'd been out of town for the weekend and didn't know the signs had changed. Like I, I had it ready in my head what I was about to say. Now, when I went to the courthouse over there on 7th Street, I was in a big room with a lot of people, and they would each get up 
and they were each convicted. And they were all guiltier of things worse than me. But this judge did not seem to care what we came in with or what excuses we had. And then it was my turn. And he had me stand up in front of everybody. And he asked me, were you speeding? Yes, but that's all I needed to know. Or what about in the second instance? Where are you speeding? Yes, but that's all I needed to know. And then for some reason, I don't know, maybe he didn't want to deal with the paperwork. He looks at me and says, Mr. Bryant, I find you not guilty. You're free to go. And I started to say, but, and then I just, I realized that was a dumb idea. <laughs> and I left. And I will tell you, true story, I have not gotten, got a speeding ticket since. It was like he said, go and speed no more. <laughs> Now, I did want a red light, but that thing was yellow for like a split second. It was not, that doesn't count. And there was a picture, so like you can see me like. <laughs> so I can't get out of that one. Have you ever been guilty, but were forgiven? See, that's the invitation that Jesus offers us. And you have to understand the context of what's happening here. It's really pretty remarkable. Jesus was walking around referring to himself as the son of man. Now, oftentimes people say about, about Jesus, well, he never claimed to be God. Well, we think that because we don't understand what the son of man actually means. We're not steeped in the Hebrew scriptures, but I'm telling you the reason they kept trying to kill Jesus was because they knew what he was claiming when he said, I'm the son of man. See, in Daniel chapter 7, there's a prophecy of the Son of Man who was human and yet lifted up and exalted to be in the place of God because he was God. In fact, he was the one who could reign over the kingdom of God. And so there were these passages of scripture that would refer to the suffering servant, the Messiah, who would one day be pierced for our transgressions but not one bone would be broken in his body. So here you have Jesus walking around, calling himself the son of man, doing the miraculous things that only the Messiah could do, and over and over and over, the religious leaders plotted not just to expose him in front of others so that they'd stop following him, but they wanted to kill him. And the way that they would kill him was by picking up rocks and stoning him. But in doing so, he wouldn't be pierced for our transgressions, and he would end up with broken bones. So calling himself the son of man, stepping through the crowds, even those that were opposed to him, even at times saying, hey, don't tell everybody yet who I am. Jesus was on a path towards the cross. And you see, in our culture, uh, generations have looked at this moment in history and blamed the Jewish religious leaders as being wholly responsible for the death of Jesus. But it's important to know that the earliest followers of Jesus were all Jewish. Jesus was Jewish. Even some of the religious leaders, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, believed in Jesus. Jesus was Jewish. The scriptures tell us that salvation comes from the Jews. You cannot blame the death of Jesus on people who are Jewish. Just like you can't blame the death of Jesus on those Roman rulers. If you read the story of the scriptures, if you understand what happened miraculously and cosmically in that moment, you and I are responsible for the death of Jesus. 
that Jesus willingly gave his life for all humanity. That if we had been there, we would have been holding the stones. But instead of being hit by rocks until he died, he was lifted up. He was exalted as the son of man, but no one expected to be on a cross. Brutalized and beaten, willingly shedding his blood on behalf of you and me. And so in this moment, I want you to pick up that rock and that pen. And I want you to listen carefully. We are not going to throw these rocks. Mm -hmm. But I want you to take this rock and take this pen. And for a moment, I just want you to interact with God, just in your own heart, just a prayer, asking God to reveal more about you. Perhaps reveal a blind spot. Maybe for you, what you need to write on this rock is that you're like these angry, religious people holding the rock, that you have a judgmental attitude. Or maybe you're, you re- resonate more with this woman and there is a secret shame, a struggle that you cannot seem to shake or overcome, a character defect that's holding you back. By writing on this rock that secret sin, that, that shame, that character defect, that struggle, it's an acknowledgement that we hold stones ready to judge others all the time. But Jesus is inviting us to allow him to love us and to forgive us and to help us learn to love and forgive others. Oftentimes, we are most judgmental towards people demonstrating what we don't like about ourselves. See, just as the accusers that day, we want to invite you to drop your rock today, to leave it here, to not carry that burden with you anymore. It's symbolically laying down that struggle, not allowing that shame, that sin, that regret to define you any longer, to no longer carry it around with you. What is your response to God? See, a brush with greatness of who Jesus is, an encounter with him strikes at the core of who we are and demands a response. And so the band is going to play, they're going to sing a song, and I want you to take advantage of this moment. It could be just taking a few moments there in your seat, writing on this rock. Or it could be even as I invite you to all stand in just a moment, that, that in that moment you're just standing exposed, vulnerable before God, allowing him to speak into your life what he wants you to lay down today. And then when the time is right, when you're ready to lay it down, just bring it up to this space. It's like an altar. You're laying down what has dragged you down at his feet. So in this moment, take advantage of this moment. Let's stand right on the rock and bring it and lay it down. Let's stand together.